I've thought a lot about how my hopes and my friends' hopes and so many other people's hopes were crushed after the 1990s and how our assumption that that we're all going in the same direction we had just lived through the end of history was so incredibly wrong. And so I think I keep circling around that place and trying to understand how people choose unfreedom, how it actually comes to take hold, what happens to shared reality and shared language when we enter an autocracy. That's what I've tried to focus when I write about Russia and this book is about the United States, but the themes are very similar. Masha Gessen's latest book is called Surviving Autocracy. It is a subject they know better than most. Now a columnist for The New Yorker, the prize-winning journalist and author spent two decades covering the resurgence of totalitarianism in Russia. Since leaving what was then the Soviet Union as a teenager, they've been a persistent and prominent critic of what is now Russia, or at least of the people who run it. Gessen has always been careful to keep pointing out, however, that what has happened in Russia is not necessarily uniquely Russian. Surviving autocracy is pitched, depressingly accurately, as a memo to their adopted United States. Many books have been written about Donald Trump's bizarre presidency, mostly essays in shock, sneering and or satire. Gessen's latest takes a more practical approach, deploying what they've learned as instructions for how a country which has taken at least a few steps down a dark path can turn itself around, ideally before November 3rd. I'm Andrew Muller and I spoke to Masha Gessen for the big interview. Masha Gessen, welcome to The Big Interview. Thank you. It's good to be here. I want to start kind of at the start, because it strikes me that one of the perspectives that underpins a lot of your work, and especially the new book, Surviving Autocracy, is that you're of that generation that got to have a fairly fully formed understanding of two completely different systems of government. You were, I think, about 14 years old when you left the Soviet Union. When you left, which I think is in 1981, did you have an understanding before you left the Soviet Union of how different it was from where you were going? I don't think you can have an understanding when you have grown up in really effectively enforced isolation. Mm. I mean, there was no place for that kind of imagination to develop. We, and by we I mean, you know, the, the sort of the Soviet underground, um, of which my parents were very much a part, you know, believed that there was something else out there. But my parents had a friend who actually joked, you know, where are you going to go? Do you have any scientific proof that the West actually exists? Have we seen any material evidence of the existence of the West? And we hadn't. But, you know, we Western journalists and we Russian intellectuals believed that liberal democracy was going to take hold. And my last book, The Future's History, was really very much about why that didn't happen and also why that misconception was so stubborn and so wrong and so important at the same time. And in a sense, the new book takes off from the same place. It's not about Russia, but I actually use the work of a Hungarian thinker named Balint Magyar, who has worked a lot on developing a system for understanding how the post-Soviet systems have developed. And one of the things he says is really striking to me, which is that when the Soviet systems collapsed in 1989, we started using the language of liberal democracy to describe them, because we assumed that that's what was going to happen, but also because that's the language of political science. 
right? That's the terminology we use. We ask, are there free and fair elections? Is there freedom of the media? Is there freedom of assembly? And what Major says is, okay, you can describe the absences or mark the absences by using that language. But you can't describe the thing itself. And I love when he says this, but you know, you can say that the elephant doesn't fly. You can say that the elephant can't swim, but you still have not described the elephant. You talk about this in, in your new book, about the perhaps the need to better define political terms and political terminology, because a word like democracy can, of course, mean any one of a number of things. Absolutely. But also that the, our entire system of understanding is biased toward what we think of as democratic institutions and what we think of as liberal democracies, right? And so we have a much harder time understanding autocracies. And so uh, Magyar has developed a language and a taxonomy for autocracies where he describes the autocratic attempt, the autocratic breakthrough, the autocratic consolidation. And in a gesture of both poetic justice and just, I think, good research, I borrow his language. So I take the language from what used to be the Eastern Bloc and apply it to the United States, which is, of course, you know, how political models develop, is we take something, see where it fits, where it needs to be adjusted, and whether it benefits our understanding. So that's a very long-winded way of answering your question. You know, I've thought a lot about how my hopes and my friends' hopes and so many other people's hopes were crushed after the 1990s, and how our assumption that, that we're all going in the same direction, we had just lived through the end of history, was so incredibly wrong. And so I think I keep circling around that place and trying to understand how people choose on freedom, how it actually comes to take hold, what happens to shared reality and shared language when we enter an autocracy. That's what I've tried to focus when I write about Russia, and this book is about the United States, but the themes are very similar. When you went back to Russia in the 1990s, then did you have an idea of what kind if Russia was going to become a liberal democracy, what kind of liberal democracy it would become? Did you imagine it being, say, akin to what the Baltic states are now, only a lot bigger, obviously? Well, it depends on what you mean by what the Baltic states are now. <laughs> because, you know, Russia made some decisions about uh, very early on about the structure of its government. They settled on a presidential republic rather than a parliamentary democracy which is what a lot of the, ostensibly, um, what a lot of the Central and Euro Eastern European post-Soviet states decided to do. I don't know that that makes a huge difference. In the 20th century, there were all these incredible arguments about whether a presidential system is better or a parliamentary system is better, whether a two-party system, you know, Hannah Arendt thought that a two-party system was a brilliant invention because it really imbued whatever party was in power with a sense of responsibility for the fate of the country that she felt was absent in a parliamentary system. I think maybe in the last 15, 20 years, we have learned that focus on structures was somewhat misplaced, that it's not unimportant to talk about institutions, but especially in the American context, this faith in the perfectly designed institution is misplaced. Again, to go back to that experience of Russia in the 1990s, though, was there a particular moment when you realized that it wasn't going to turn out like that? Or was this a, a sort of a, a frog in a saucepan kind of process? You know, I think the answer is usually both. 
I certainly remember feeling really uncomfortable in 1996 when President Boris Yeltsin was re-elected. And so many of the people I knew felt that his opponent, who was a communist, was an existential threat to the country. And so they voted for Yeltsin and worked to have Yeltsin elected. And, you know, the brutal, awful, just, I mean, all wars are unjustified, but but this was just beyond anything I'd seen. And I'd been a war correspondent in the 90s. The war in Chechnya had been going on for two years, right? And, and all these people I knew were willing to forgive or forget the war in Chechnya because they felt that the communist candidate, who I think would have been freely and fairly elected had the election been allowed to sort of go on in what we think of as a free and fair way, they felt that he was an existential threat. So that was scary. And But I think the decisive moment for me was the emergence of Vladimir Putin. And here I can, you know, the record will show that almost as soon as he appeared, I started writing about what a threat it was to the fledgling Russian democracy to have this very, very Soviet, very, very KGB guy become president in a very, very undemocratic way. I mean, is there actually a a vastly different parallel history of Russia in which Vladimir Putin, for whatever reason, never rises any higher than minor KGB functionary? I guess we'll never know. (laughs) But look, I mean, this is, um, it's very much like the line I tried to walk in the new book about Trump. There are two ways to tell the Trump story. Trump came from outer space. He's a total anomaly in American politics. The Russians installed him and he is destroying everything that we hold dear, which is all true, except for maybe the Russians installed him. And then there's another way, which is a minority view, but it's held by some people I respect very much, like the political scientist Corey Robin, who basically says, oh, he's just a Republican president. He is the natural continuation of Republican politics over the last however many generations. He is exactly the same thing that we've seen before, and all the wanted norms that you talk about that he is supposedly destroying, you know, are just these norms of, of your, you know, class privilege, which is also true. Right. Both of those things are true. The conditions for a Trump were laid over, in some ways, over 50 years. I'm counting back to JFK or in some ways over the last 19 years. I'm counting back to 9-11. And yet Trump is a special snowflake and someone who shares some of his qualities, but is not a deranged, self-obsessed, malignant narcissist clown could have taken his place. And so, you know, both of those things are possible. He is a completely anomalous, you know, unlike anybody else, albeit quite recognizable character. He's also using the groundwork that was laid for him. All right. So I I think of it as taking a quantum leap from a running start. I want to come back in a bit to the parallels between the two, which you and the and the non-parallels between the two, which you do write about in the new book. But you've written, as you said, extensively about Vladimir Putin, most notably in your book *Man Without a Face*. Do you know how much interest he has personally taken in your writing about him? I do exactly zero, <laughs> and I, you know, there is a very strange reason I know this. But this is now ancient history. But, you know, eight years ago, I was fired from my job as editor-in-chief of Russia's big popular science magazine 
for not sending a reporter to accompany Putin on his adventure hang gliding with the Siberian cranes. And I tweeted about it, and Putin apparently saw it and um, called me and offered me my job back. I mean, it wasn't his to offer back, but he doesn't realize that because he thinks if he likes something, he owns it. But as the meeting with Putin was prepared to discuss that whole misadventure of mine, it became clear to me that he was not briefed on who I was. And, you know, the reasons are very clear because he loved that magazine. You know, I was its editor. And probably at a certain point when he decided that he loved that magazine, and this was during my tenure, somebody would have had to say to him, but there's an issue with the editor. And someone dropped the ball. And I actually know who it was, and I know I know how that happened. They didn't notice that I was the editor. And then when he wanted a meeting, then that someone would have had to say to him, but there's a problem, and there's a book, Like, and he would have had to then learn of the existence of the book, which also couldn't have been pleasant for the messenger. So there was actually a lot of jockeying to avoid telling him who I was. So they basically told him nothing about me. That was a very interesting experience. Like he was told about my preferred name usage, which is particular in Russian, but he was not told that I was an American citizen, for example. Something that I happen to understand because uh, our meeting happened to fall on September 11th. And so I know there's no way he would have omitted a mention of that if he'd known that I was a US citizen, and so on. And certainly he didn't know about the book. What kind of conversation is it possible to have with him? What, what do you talk about when you meet President Putin? Well, we talked about the sincerity of his nature conservation efforts. And we basically had two topics. He wanted to tell me that he was, he really did want to save the Siberian cranes and wasn't just hang gliding with them for show. And that he sympathized with my publisher for firing me for not sending a reporter, but he had overreacted and he wanted to set things straight. And so my agenda was to draw him out a little bit about those showy gestures of his, which was really fun, and to tell him that the publisher had not merely overreacted, but violated the law. Russia has this great press law, and this goes back to the topic of how well-designed institutions can be. Russia has a really great press law that was written in 1991 that makes it illegal for the publisher to interfere in the editorial operations. But, you know, who cares? Anyway, when we got to that topic, the conversation was very civil up until that point. When we got to that topic, he said, okay, I know what you're going to say. Thank you for coming in. <laughs> Stood up, shook my hand, and I was out of there. Um, let's talk then about Trump. You wrote early on in 2016 for the New York Review of Books, Your Rules for Surviving Autocracy. How well do you think that has held up when measured against three and a half years now of Donald Trump? Well, that piece has held up, unfortunately, extremely well. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, that, that piece was not a blueprint for politically resisting autocracy. It was very much a piece about psychic and intellectual survival, which is what I felt I was in a position to do. The, the, the piece has a very funny history, which is that, like most people I know, I went to an election watching party on November 8th, and then the party just kind of went sour, and, and everybody tried to slink away without saying goodbye to the hosts. And as I was biking home, I started getting phone calls and text messages from various acquaintances asking, you know, what do we do now? Which I thought was really ridiculous, because why would you ask me what we do now? I was living in exile, and clearly, like, whatever I did was not, had not worked out that well for me. 
But it's a long bike ride, and I kept thinking, okay, is there anything that actually uh, that I have learned, right? Is there something that goes into this kind of letter from the future that I can send to my friends? And I thought, well, I have learned something about living in this kind of mushy reality. And it was very clear, I mean, from the Trump campaign, as you know, American presidential campaigns are obscenely long, so we had had ample opportunity to observe him. It was very clear that that's the period we were entering. And I also knew what it was like to really try to resist something that you understand logically, but you don't want to believe is happening, which is what you know, we experienced in Russia with Putin, for the, especially in the first few years. And I feared would experience with Trump. You, you, you write about this in the book, in particular, how the media have responded to him, this almost desperate attempt to try to find something normal about what he's doing, those sort of moments where he managed to get through some minor set piece without committing any great obvious uh, howler or indiscretion and all of a sudden is rewarded with editorial saying he has become president at last. Absolutely. And look, I feel it in my soul. I like I have there have been times when I have watched a Trump speech and thought, okay, okay, that that was, you know, <laughs> um, like that didn't I, I didn't have a feeling of burning shame at, at observing this for every second of that spectacle. Credit where it's due. <laughs> exactly. So and and I think and I I want to make this very clear, right? I think that the because I I really take the New York Times and some other media to task in the book, but I think that the problem is real. It's not like there's like a great solution that the Times is just refusing to utilize in covering Trump. I think covering Trump is in itself kind of an existential threat to media. This is another point you make: the the idea that, as you say, Trumpism is actually kind of a trap for journalists. Absolutely. Because here we have a president who lies all the time, who not only lies, but robs executive speech of meaning, which is an extraordinary thing, right? If you think about it, so for example, he says, let's inject ourselves with disinfectant. And within hours, poison centers around the country are inundated with calls from people who are either considering injecting themselves with disinfectant or have already injected themselves with disinfectant. So his speech, because he has the biggest microphone, or, you know, in academic speak, executive speech act, has real-life consequences that are immediate and tangible. And then the next morning he says, I was kidding. That meant nothing. And so how do you deal with something that on the face of it is nonsensical and, he says, means nothing, when it actually has real-life consequences? And so empirically means something. Right? And that's a trap that we're constantly in. Where have you got to, though, on what strikes me as well, one of the eternal questions about Trump? And there is a chapter in your book where you talk about, you know, why would somebody even lie about the weather, which he famously did or had people do for him about the weather at his inauguration. Do you get the sense now that Trump does this deliberately with malice aforethought, or is he just a genuine simpleton who just says things that pop into his head? Well, again, actually, I think I think both can be sort of true. I mean, I don't think he is a mastermind of evil. I think, you know, he doesn't have enough brain to be the mastermind of anything, right? But I think he is a very intuitive performer, and that is that is a genuine talent. He performs the kind of power that he imagines himself having, right? And an integral part of that power is the power to say whatever he wants whenever he wants to, the power to force you to engage with his absurd statements because he has the power. 
right? It's the power lie. It's self-enforcing. And it is incredibly effective. I mean, is, is there an element in which then you see the trajectory of Russia over the last 30 years as a warning to the United States now that this is what can happen? Absolutely. And obviously, Russia is, has a very different history. I wrote a book about how it is very much shaped by its history of totalitarianism. That was sort of my argument, but I think, you know, that's one way of telling the story. Another way of telling the story is to say, here were people who had a chance to live in a very different society and to invent a society anew, right? who had this opportunity that arises from crisis and collapse, and who decided to hand that opportunity over to a very uninteresting, uneducated, uncurious man who promised nostalgically to transport them to an imaginary past. And in the United States, we have something very similar, and we have... and. You know, autocracies do proceed by what I think Major has laid out as a very clear set of, of steps, beginning with the autocratic attempt. And just comparing Trump to Putin and just comparing the United States to Russia would be intellectually questionable. But looking at a number of strongmen who have appeared over the last you know, 10, 15 years in really vastly different cultures, but have trafficked in many of the same tropes and have short up power using many of the same tools is really informative. I use Russia a lot because that's what I spent you know, 25 years studying and writing about. But my ability to use Russia is short up by observing so many other places where something similar has happened. From India, the, the world's largest democracy, to Israel, the, you know, the only democracy in the Middle East, to Brazil, to Venezuela, to the Philippines, to Hungary, you know, examples abound and and the similarities are really terrifying. We are unfortunately coming towards the end of the time we have. I want to attempt optimism as we finish. If we look at the United States, which later this year will decide whether or not to continue with the Trump experiment. The time I've been talking to people about Donald Trump, I hear two There are two basic strains of optimism that I detect. One is from American conservatives, and I mean proper old school Eisenhower, Reagan type people who aren't keen on Trump, but think this is perhaps an overdue stress test for our country's institutions, and those institutions will meet that challenge and we will survive this. The other optimism I hear is from American liberals who suggest that Trump and and the midterm elections were perhaps evidence of this, that Trump will destroy everything he attempts to protect and advance by prompting an enormous backlash of liberal activism and a revival of civic society, having, having demonstrated to them what can happen if you take your eye off the ball. Do you think there's anything in either of those analyses? You know, I'm less familiar with what you put across as the conservative strand of it. But the liberal one, yeah, absolutely. There's that analysis. And of course, more recently, and this is the, the, the greatest ray of hope I have seen in years, you know, just the activism around the country, which is really fueled by not only anger, but, you know, real sort of pent up demand for reinvention and envisioning a different future which is something that has been lacking in the Democratic Party, which is why Trump's promise of the imaginary past has been so incredibly effective. The big question for me, well, there are two questions, right? 
is the energy of these protests and, and, and the activism, is it sustainable until November? We still have nearly half a year to go. And and I'm scared that that it may it may not be sustained, might also get a little bit both tired and, and overly optimistic. And the other is, does the Democratic Party have the wherewithal to use that energy and to use that vision to propel itself forward so far? It has shown very few signs of doing that, right? Even its response to the midterm elections in 2018 was basically to continue backing very conventional center, what they imagine are sort of candidates who can appeal to both sides, who in the end appeal to neither, right? Instead of backing candidates who actually represent a younger, much more future-oriented kind of voting population. So if the Democratic Party can finally get its act together on that score, then I think we have a chance in November. And then, you know, there's also the question of whether he goes peacefully in November, of course. Masha Gessen, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. My many thanks to Masha Gessen. Surviving Autocracy is published by Penguin Random House and out now. The Big Interview is produced and edited by Yolin Goffan. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs>